it really then depends on a cancer by cancer, biology by biology basis on understanding what biomarker do we want to link to a specific patient population that is then dependent on a particular mechanism. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio, a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Cancer drug development has been long associated with a high rate of failure. How can researchers reduce development cost and more importantly, create real clinical impact for patients suffering from a multitude of cancers? The answer may lie in embracing newer technologies for generating fresh insights into the complex world of cancer drug development. Together, we'll uncover the innovations and breakthroughs that are reshaping the landscape of cancer research with the ultimate goal of providing better, more promising treatments for those who need them most. To talk about this, today we're here with David Lee. Could you please introduce yourself? Thanks for having me on, Kasha. We're really excited to be here. My name is David Lee, CEO and co-founder of Meliora Therapeutics. What we do is we use AI and machine learning to try to draw mechanistic insights about what a cancer drug is actually doing, and then pair that with the appropriate patient population as well as the appropriate clinical development plan to ultimately try to fundamentally improve the process of cancer drug discovery and improve our probability of success. So when it comes to oncology therapies, particularly in clinical trials, there's this discouraging fate of a 97% failure rate. Can we talk about that as a starting point? Why, why is the failure rate so high? And is that exclusive for oncology drugs or is that ubiquitous across all drugs? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the key factors for why the failure rate for oncology drugs is so high is that we have to go back to ultimately kind of the, the starting point of how do we develop these cancer drugs traditionally. One of the ways that this traditionally has been done is we'll f take a molecule, see if it actually has some sort of preclinical impact in some cell line or subsystem, put it into a mouse model if it is finding some efficacy. Uh, killing cancer cells and, and otherwise trying to kind of remain uh, the healthy cells, keep them untouched. And then we hope it works in a human. But the problem here is that it really incentivizes pretty much any molecule that shows any type of anti-cancer effect in the preclinical systems to be more, move forward into the clinical testing in, in humans. And actually, in many traditional views in industry, the mechanism of action or how does that molecule actually achieve its anti-cancer profile is not really the first order problem. It's, you know, it's a nice to have, not a real must have in order to move that molecule forward. And, you know, we're of a view that that needs to change. We think mechanism of action is really important for understanding uh, how this molecule works, but ultimately how to position that molecule for success when we bring it downstream into the clinic. And that can impact a whole range of factors we can get into. Uh, so we think that that's really one big, big reason why a lot of cancer drugs so far have not been uh, ultimately been successful. A second is that if we don't have a very strong understanding of mechanism, that leads us into ways where molecules may have off-target effects, have toxicity, uh, just have just kind of an array of unintended consequences that ultimately, again, is kind of the significant factor for failure for drugs that make it into the clinic. So 
all roads in our minds really kind of lead back to, do we understand this molecule? Do we understand how mechanistically it's able to achieve uh, its anti-cancer profile? And how do we best leverage that understanding of mechanism to really inform all the downstream steps of drug discovery? So if, if I understand correctly, the, the main problem of the past in terms of uh, drug development is that you're just screening for some sort of binding and that may be off target. They may not be related to the actual cancer or the mechanism of, of action in terms of the, the cancer and the biology of the cancer, um, which could have the un, unintended consequences in terms of toxin and tolerability. Uh, in terms of the resources, what does it take to develop these pathways? I mean, I'm thinking keg, reactome type resources. What's lacking in those and how, how do you improve that? I think in traditional methods, you know, you have, there are tools that you could use to kind of screen molecules against a certain target, um, a whole bunch of kind of assays that have gotten more and more high throughput. But the challenge is, no matter how high throughput we make it, we still can only, uh, we will be limited by really the, the wet lab restrictions of we can only test few hundred proteins at a single time. We can only test assays that usually are targeted to a single protein class or target class at a time. Now, if we think about, again, the two main factors that really are transforming the toolkit that we can use to understand these molecules, one is better molecular biology toolkits and tool sets to allow us to perturb biology, uh, to allow us to generate, again, kind of signatures that we can match to specific molecules. Now that we've suddenly unlocked a whole new, whole new dimension, of new data we can use to bring to bear for understanding molecules. And then second is automation and, and computation and to understand more deeply in a perhaps to the human eye, pretty random set of data, how do we draw a signal for what this, let's say, let's just give a concrete example. You have a molecule that is producing a set of outputs for uh, assay A, B, and C. This is a very contrived, simplified example, but even in a very small number of assays, the human eye or even a very kind of basic basic statistics that you could run may not be able to draw out the signal of what this molecule is actually doing. If you run it on some computational resources, ML, AI, and more, you can start to understand, well, maybe there are some hidden signals that allow us to better understand this particular molecule, but not only that, be able to do it at scale and therefore be able to find much better starting points for drug discovery. Um, it's better in a couple instances. One in the sense that you'd be able to understand their true mechanism. Uh, and two is that you have a much wider search space that you could go through um, because you're not limited to all the restrictions uh, of wet lab approaches. So you, you, you mentioned earlier the complexity of cancer in that there's a multitude of cancers. Uh, you also alluded to what sounded like biomarkers, right? Things like BRCA1 and 2, HER2, and how those behave differently within populations, same cancer, but, but very different, uh, very different targets that you can go after. Um, how, how do you approach that from a mechanism standpoint? How do you sort of develop, develop these, um, what I'm imagining as a pathway, but then have them personalized enough that you can take into account that you have these subpopulations or populations that just behave inherently differently? Absolutely. I, I think this is a really key question and still a very difficult one, uh, very much so. Uh, 
we believe that if you know the mechanism or you, you have a very strong conviction around the mechanism, you use that as a starting point to better understand the biology and therefore find some commonalities from within the understanding of mechanism that then leads you to biomarker, whether that may be uh, you know, kind of uh, hard genetic alterations like deletions or mutations or other uh, methylation and or epigenetic markers. It really then depends on a cancer by cancer biology by biology basis on understanding what biomarker do we want to link to a specific patient population that is then dependent on a particular mechanism. So we do think that you start with mechanism, but you but that's not enough. You do need to push downstream all the way to connecting that to some clinical opportunity, we would like to say, or clinical impact you can make for a specific set of patients with a specific biomarker. One kind of observation to tie this back into is why do we think that that ultimately will change the probability of success of any given asset in the clinic? And maybe a, a contri again, kind of basic contrived example is if you think through, if your molecule, let's say it, you've recruited 30 folks in your phase one, you have a, a kind of a variety of solid tumors represented and you go find, a, you know, there's a, only a small portion of these 30 folks that are actually responding to your treatment or have a significant response to your treatment, but you are showing tox at significant levels across perhaps half the population. Well, at those levels, you probably are not moving for this molecule into, you know, a registrational and trial and beyond. But if we were to say, we already know that this is the mechanism for this particular type of cancer, then let's go use that as a starting point to, again, reduce into a biomarker that we can then identify ideally prior to even starting a phase one recruitment and therefore then in phase one only recruit those patients that therefore have this type of particular uh, dependency as as determined by their biomarker status and then be able to dramatically improve our efficacy in this efficacy tox trade-off which again is the is the ultimate math that we need to run in order to have a successful clinical program so you mentioned um synthetic biology and being able to perturb the biology at the, at the cell level using tools like CRISPR. Uh, you also mentioned AI in terms of the modeling and being able to decipher the signal from the noise. What other technology advancements have happened in, let's say, the past five to 10 years that have really enabled this mechanistic approach to drug development? There's quite a few. I think one significant one is uh, the cost of sequencing and the ability to not only perturb biology, but then measure what happens. And if we, I think that the, if there is a significant reduction in the cost basis for running a, a significant number of perturbation experiments in different systems, so whether that might be in cell lines or getting closer to 3D organoids or PDX systems, and other types of in vivo systems and ultimately trying to recapitulate getting closer and closer to inhuman biology. If we can get there and then generate a very cost-effective data that then machine learning and AI and other computational models can then train off of, we now have fundamentally moved the needle in terms of how well we understand the biology, how well we understand a molecule and how well that molecule's uh, 
impact to cancer biology matches known mechanisms or known targets, then we have, again, just a much better chance to understand, one, the biological problem, two, find the right chemistry to drug that particular biological phenomenon, and then three, link it up with some clinical opportunity as demonstrated by identifying some appropriate biomarker. And so there's there's a number of different uh, kind of new technologies that really enabled this. This, uh, this podcast is obviously focused on the research informatics side. So let's talk about the computation, right? What from a technology, like an IT technology standpoint, what's changed in the last five to 10 years? Uh, I mean, you specifically mentioned sequencing cost coming down, but the other side of that is how you analyze your data. What's changed? What would have been the big game changers in the last five, 10 years in terms of computation? You mentioned AI, yeah. model building, uh, language models. Like, what, what has changed? Can you kind of walk us through that? Sure. I think uh, there's probably two sides. I, I admittedly don't have a computer science background, but uh, have worked in the kind of the software and life science space for a number of years. In, in my simplistic view, and, and there's definitely a lot more nuance and technical degree of detail here, but in my simplistic view is just twofold. One is the compute in terms of how do we actually analyze this data and what are the techniques that we can use to really improve the signal finding and, and dampen down the noise as compared to the signal. And so that might be strategies that are you know advanced neural networks, uh, things around um, embeddings, which is what we're using in our particular approach, and other ways to really just capture a lot of very nuanced, high degree of depth data and compare that cross-functionally at a very large scale. So the ability to compute differently in a more efficient way, in a more time and cost efficient way, all of that allows us to have quote unquote better data crunching. On the other side of it, I, I think is storage. You now have cloud in kind of a ubiquitous fashion. The cost of cloud storage has come way down with all the service providers that are now available. We can store you know, petabytes of data is, is no big deal anymore. And we can do that very easily, very easily move it between different computation stations and uh, between different types of uh, computational pipelines and string them all together. And we can do that in minutes, if not, you know, you know, seconds. And then we can do that very, very quickly. In terms of creating your model, uh, you're obviously generating a lot of data in-house uh, on the biology side, right? You mentioned sequencing, epigenetic, I'm assuming metabolomic or uh, phenotypic data that you're, you're pulling together. You're creating these models, and then you're trying to figure out the, that, that signal. Uh, how do you, or, or I guess, are you comparing those data and those models to uh, old data, right? Are you doing like a retrospective to compare how your performance would have done compared you know, as, as compared to other drugs in the market or other failed candidates, targets, things like that. And, and how do you approach that? Old benchmarks and data and, and perhaps failed drugs, that, that is one exercise that we started our development with because we wanted to understand how much different is our approach as compared to some of the insights that uh, previous approaches may have generated. We think that you the, the ultimate baseline to be measuring against is to say, can we determine whether or not for us, because since we're trying to measure the, the mechanism, understand the mechanism, we're trying to identify, can we go out and identify mischaracterized drugs in the open sphere? And can we uh, ultimately identify, well, we thought this was a molecule that was targeting protein X, and, and actually it's totally something else. 
and then be able to use that insight to explain, yeah, so was that the reason why that molecule was successful or perhaps unsuccessful when it was in the clinic? One step I, I don't want to skip over, though, is that in any model training and any kind of computational model building, we think it's important to at first set a baseline against positive controls. And in, in, in what we call positive controls here would be molecules that we do really understand, that we do understand their mechanism. They've been very well validated in the open market for many years, and we do have a very strong mechanistic understanding. So what we'd like to do as a first step when we were building our model originally is let's try to test our model in predicting the true mechanism of action for these well-known, well-understood, well-characterized positive controls and ensure that we had a very, very high success rate. So for us, we, we felt that that was important to, to be reaching you know, pretty much near perfect for these um, these positive controls. Great. Thank you for walking us through that. I, I've got a much clearer understanding of how you're building these models to understand the mechanism of action. I'm happy to hear that your your models are actually either on par or slightly improved from those that are currently understood. So two two part question, right? So one is understanding the mechanism of action. What is the marginal improvement in terms of that success rate just based on the improvement? Uh, on, on understanding the mechanism of action or how do you sort of perceive that? And the second question is what comes after this, right? Uh, I'm assuming that the next part of it is looking at toxin tolerability. Um, how, how do you approach that uh, and, and how much of that is computational as well? Yeah, so great questions. I, I guess first to start on just isolating, how much does mechanism really matter, right? How, does, sure. how much does this improve probability of success? And ultimately what we measure is clinical success and clinical impact. I think this is a question where we believe that our bottom line is it needs to be connected to a mechanistic understanding that will change the clinical development plan. Meaning that if we can find the right mechanism, pair that with the right patient population, which then in of itself should be finding substantial multiples better than the kind of current status quo, you still are not fully baking in the ability to as I was describing earlier in our conversation, widen that therapeutic index because you're also avoiding certain unintended talks as well as really dialing into patient populations where the a certain level of tox is acceptable as long as they have a mean, really outsized meaningful impact on efficacy. So we think that if you combine those factors together, then you're looking at a you know more than just multiples improvement and probability of success. How are you evaluating the potential toxin tolerability. I'm how, how much of that is in silico uh, versus uh, yeah. wet lab? Oh, almost almost glossed over that. So we do have, so in terms of our approach, because we have a model that's building mechanism signatures, essentially, you can think of it as, you know, what does a EGFR inhibitor look like in terms of its impact to cancer cell biology or a BRAF or, uh, you know, whatever target, novel target included that, that could be represented here. That means we also, as a close cousin, to that type of analysis are other types of tox signals that may, we may want to avoid. And this is a little bit trickier because, as I mentioned, kind of in cancer, a lot of things are considered tox, but some of them may actually be helpful. And therefore, we have to have a pretty nuanced view of what a cancer tox signal actually is and what translational context that tox actually matters. There's obviously some more standard liver tox, neurotox, and other things that you can go and measure and build signatures for, but we believe you need to kind of take a step beyond that or a few steps beyond that to really understand what balance of tox versus efficacy you're really trying to strike. 
I'm imagining quite a bit of data. You mentioned petabytes or, or the scale of petabytes. Um, you're, you're stringing that together in a multimodal approach. Uh, you mentioned genomic, epigenomic, uh, probably phenotypic, mm -hmm. yep. metabolomic data. Uh, and now you're pairing it with what I perceive as assay data on the tox side of things. You, you mentioned liver tox or, or um, blood toxicity, et cetera. Uh, how large are these models? Like how, how big of a corpus of data are, are you housing? Right now, we're in our view, it's still small. There's kind of millions, tens of millions, hundred millions of data points. We're just beginning in the sense that there's there's many layers more. There's more modalities of data that we haven't looked at deeply. And uh, whether that might be the proteome, whether that might be uh, copy number variation, there's just, there's just so many different modes of data that may actually be impactful for mechanism calling. At the same time, we're also careful not to over-engineer the problem. Sometimes we can get with a single modality or very rarely a single modality, but kind of a couple modalities of data, you can kind of triangulate to what the mechanism is the vast, vast majority of the time. And in those senses, then there's no reason to kind of keep dumping more data on the problem. So you mentioned a few different genes uh, in our in our conversation, right? Uh, you just mentioned EGFR, BRCA1, 2. How much of your work is focused on uh, looking at current known biomarkers for, for various cancers versus trying to find new targets or new genes sure. that are that are uh, yet to be uncovered? It's a strategy question for a small biotech Then we are actually trying to develop our own drugs. There's a balance that we need to strike in the sense of more established targets. You will have the ability to move quicker because you don't have to develop new assays from, on, from scratch. You will have the ability to look ahead and see what worked and what hasn't worked. And so for us, the technology component of our platform is spitting out the ability to, to identify novel targets, novel chemistry against novel targets, and be able to link phenotypic phenomenon like an anti-cancer signal with a particular target that is very likely novel. The question is, how much should we lean into that as we think about portfolio construction and really developing our own assets and, and, and programs to bring into the clinic? And while I'd love to say that we are just, you know, whole hog going out into looking at novel targets in, in, in every end of the spectrum, we are taking a pretty balanced approach. We will say, yes, there are going to be some more de-risk targets in our portfolio. The reason being that we can then very quickly validate and uh, really demonstrate the value of this particular computational approach in terms of mechanism identification I wanted to talk about the feedback loop. So you're obviously creating, pouring a lot of time and energy into developing these mechanism of actions. You're pairing that with the tox tolerability side of things, yeah. and you're measuring some outcome. How much of that information goes back into the starting point, which is how do you refine that mechanism of action and, and have a very clearly defined MOA? You know, I, I think that that's the power of computational systems as you build them is they're supposed to get better and iterate and so what we can do is we can generate data for our predictions test them in the wet lab whether it's biochemistry assays or other further mechanistic studies to really confirm or disprove our computational prediction once we have that information this is kind of what i was talking about earlier the data in of itself brings about insights those insights then guide you to generating more data 
and that l further data then really bolsters the validity and signal of the computational predictions that you make going forward. And so there is that feedback loop is just internally testing what we've learned of, hey, there's a molecule we've learned actually is not an EGFR inhibitor. Um, now can we bring that and really understand what it is and then improve the model to have it learn that this type of molecule using this type of signal may actually be something else. So let's leverage that information. Um, but beyond that, I think that there's also a lot of different ways where feedback loops in drug discovery, I think, are, are often missed in current traditional approaches. Like, for example, when we go into a clinical trial, it's very rare. Either it's very rare internally at any biopharma company to kind of do a very deep um, kind of postmortem of what, why did this molecule not work? What, what was really wrong with it? Was it the tox? Was it we didn't get the right population? Was it was it totally something else? And there's a lot of it, it's difficult to kind of do that postmortem. But we think that if you can identify a mechanism early, find the right chemistry to drug that mechanism, then you've started to build a very rational data package for why your hypothesis for why this molecule should be working. And then you at least have a handle for if you want to improve that molecule because there is a failure or there is a misstep or there is a setback, we know where to go. And that, I think, over the long term, over the course of years and decades, is the real feedback loop that we need to fundamentally change drug discovery, because we need to know why that molecule did not or did work well in human populations, in human biology. And so all of this other kind of feedback iteration prior to it is, is just prepping for the big game, really. We, we need to understand that bottom line so that we can move that in a much more fundamental manner. And then in terms of the benefits, right? So this model, uh, ultimate goal is is obviously reducing that failure rate, coming up with new successful uh, drugs in, in the clinical in the clinical space, um, reducing costs, being more efficient. What, what are the other drivers? What are the benefits that you want to see? For us, it's pretty simple. In terms of there's a lot of AI for drug discovery companies out there. There's a lot of new computational approaches for drug discovery. And many of them in the first waves of iterations of those visions, we're talking about cost and speed. We can take many, many more molecules and screen many, many more molecules and bring it much more quickly. That This is also true for kind of the next waves of iteration and innovation that we've seen. And I, I would say that we're a part of that. For example, just, just kind of a, a one data point is a couple of the molecules that we've produced and brought now into lead optimization have taken on the order of less than a year with less than six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars in medchem spend wow. as opposed to order of magnitude at least sure. beyond that at in least time and cost. Zero. <laughs> but for us that that doesn't really capture the biggest value for this platform. The biggest value is can we go into the clinic and be better at developing drugs for humans? And that to us means you go into a phase two, you have an efficacy study that is really a proof of concept clinically that this molecule is finding the right population, finding the right types of disease drivers, and you're able to and you're able to drug that successfully in a pretty potent and selective fashion. I, I want to dive into precision medicine. You've mentioned that a couple times, finding the right patient, the right drug, uh, the right, you know, the, the right treatment at the right time. 
uh, how, from a computational perspective, how do you screen for patients? How do you find the right population? How do you find that window of opportunity, right? From, from you know, just from an informatics standpoint, how do you approach that? Yeah, well, I, I'd simplify it almost, again, I, I try to keep things simple and not overcomplicate them, but I, I think about it almost as just two levels that we currently have wide enough underlying systemic data to analyze. On the one level, it's cell line data. We have a lot of cell line data that we can easily either easily generate ourselves or we can generate it, uh, identify and, and kind of the right public data sources that we can find experiments where cell lines have been manipulated, perturbed, and really be able to identify the right biology within a particular cell line. So that's one level. The second level, which I think is has improved dramatically in the last, let's call it five years, is um, uh, clinical data, essentially finding and public data sources at first, since you know we're, it's expensive to generate ourselves, but eventually, yeah, we would want to go there, is identifying what types of biology matches up with what types of clinical populations. And here there are a variety of public data sources that, again, in a very recent number of years, have been able to go on the order of tens of thousands of patients, hundreds of thousands of patients. And it's really at that scale, you start to see biological patterns for all these different modalities of whether it's the underlying DNA or whether it's RNA or something else, we're still building that map right now. And so this is why I think we're very early days in terms of computational approaches really having a substantial impact because the data corpus that we're analyzing, iterating through is still only being built. And therefore, you know, to connect all the way back to your question, we need, we, for us, when precision medicine really makes sense is we see it at the patient level. We see it in the kind of the cellular level of that cancer biology of that particular disease and the pathway that we would then want to perturb. And we are starting to be able to connect the two with a single piece of chemistry, right? A single molecule or therapeutic that can modulate Some that. Simple assay. Right. And, and therefore, uh, when you have more corpus of data on both kind of the fundamental biology level as well as the clinical level and you start to make those connections, that's when we you think ultimately you need mechanism to, to can make that connection. But that is the connection that is necessary to be made in order for us to have confidence that we think that this is going to have some sort of clinical impact. That sort of leads me to my next question, which is where do you see this going in the future, right? Five, 10 years from now, is it just a larger database that you have access to? What are the game changers? How do you see the advancements? And, and what are those advancements that you see? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a few facets, I think, right now that are undergoing just tremendous change. One is the amount of data available in the clinic on patients and the types of data readouts that you can get, whether that's tumor-specific or uh, tumor tissue-specific uh, or single-cell there's a lot more data that's coming and that will enable us to um, have more of a corpus to, to work with in terms of understanding, again, these key questions around patient selection, precision medicine, mechanism of action. We have to be careful, though. When back in 2001 and early 2000s with the Human Genome Project, we sequenced you know every base pair. But I think where we are and, and, and felt like there should have been kind of an explosion of medical improvement, which never really bore too much fruit. However, I do think that we are in the next kind of iteration of that, where before we had perhaps a way too simplistic view that DNA matters the most here in terms of clinical impact. Now, I think we are really 
grappling around the right building blocks of DNA, RNA, protein, um, you know, signaling, uh, just the whole system working together and then often going off the rails when disease happens. And so better understanding of that is, is going to be very fundamental for building better models. And I, I think actually the biology is what's holding us back here. It's that understanding, biological understanding, which we kind of as a as a kind of a super section would include mechanistic understanding inside. It's the biological understanding that's holding us back. It's the ability to then generate the right types of data, multimodal fashion, in human, and connect that back to some basic biology and to build models on top of all that. That's, I think, where this gets really exciting. Thank you for listening to BioRadio. I'd like to thank David for being our guest today, talking about reimagining cancer drug development. I'd also like to thank the listeners. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.